Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As always, we have a privilege to turn to God's Word this morning. And we're looking at 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. And I remind you, if you were here with us uh, last week, that uh, we saw last week Paul's discussion of the man of lawlessness and the schedule of events, if you will, leading up to the return of Christ. And Paul's emphasis last week was particularly on those who fall away from Christ and how both the work of Satan and the work of God is evident in those last times leading to judgment. But Paul doesn't want to imply that in the last days everyone will fall away from Christ, nor does he mean to imply that the Thessalonian Christians need to be worried uh, or afraid for these last days. Because as it turns out, not only is God at work, yes, for judgment, but God is also at work for the salvation of his people. And so Paul's going to go into detail in today's passage to rejoice and give thanks to God for his work in the Thessalonians' lives, which gives them good hope of steadfast faith in future glory. So that's where we are in Paul's discussion, and I would encourage you to read with me. We're going to start in verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll read from chapter 2, verse 13, down to verse 5 of chapter 3. Hear God's word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. God, this is your word and we thank you for it. We pray that you would hold our hearts fast to it. And that you would strengthen us and work in us for your glory this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. At the core of Paul's logic this morning is a principle that most of us, I think, are familiar with and have some experience with because we've all at some point received spam emails. This past March, right after my installation as senior pastor, someone out there in the great World Wide Web, created an email address, pastordrchriswalker at gmail.com. 
And they then used this email address to email a number of our supported mission organizations and missionaries with an email that said, please get back to me. I need a favor from you. Now, not surprisingly, none of our mission organizations fell for that email. Now, why not? Well, because our missionaries and mission organizations, they know Westminster. They know who we are. They know how we operate. We don't send out emails blindly asking for a general favor. And so they had the confidence to stand against that deceiving appeal. And I think that's why most of us have no problem rejecting spam emails. We know the people that they supposedly come from. We know their character. We know that actually they're not stuck in Africa right now. And we know that even if they were, they wouldn't ask for the PIN numbers of several $100 Amazon gift cards, as one email supposedly from my grandparents asked for at one point. See, it's the confidence in the character of the people we know that gives us the ability to say no to this appeal. And it's a similar principle that's underlying the logic of Paul's argument in this morning's passage. He argues this main point this morning. He says that, yes, while Satan's activity will lead some to fall away, God's people can rest secure, steadfast, and confident in their salvation because of the certainty of God's character and God's work. The certainty of who God is leads to steadfastness. That's Paul's main point. And if you look at the passage we've read, Paul actually makes this argument twice. He makes it once in verses 13 down through chapter 3, verse 2, and then he repeats the same logic briefly in verses 3 through 5 in chapter 3. So we're going we're gonna to look at this progression, which goes from who God is to how God's people respond to Paul's prayer that God would work what he has promised. So it's a tightly, logic, a tightly logical argument of Paul's, and we're going to work through it. And we'll start where Paul starts with what God has done for his people. Who is God and what has he done for us? We start in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And some have referred to these two verses as a mini-theology of salvation. Because in these two verses, we get a summary of what God has done for his people. Walk through these verses with me. Paul begins by saying, We ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you from the beginning. Now, you'll note if you're reading in an ESV Bible that the ESV probably reads God chose you as the first fruits, but then there's a note down below saying some manuscripts read God chose you from the beginning. The reality is we have two manuscripts here that, with a slightly different word that could yield either translation. Both of them are theologically accurate. Nothing significant is uh, made between the difference. The question is just, what did Paul intend? And every commentator I read, at least uh, five of them, all agreed universally that God chose you from the beginning is likely the best translation here. So that's what I will, will go with. So where does salvation start? It's a point that Paul makes repeatedly in the New Testament. We thank God for salvation because from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, God has sovereignly chosen the Thessalonian Christians as his people who would believe in him. Well, it says God chose them from the beginning. What did he choose them for? Well, it tells us God chose them from the beginning to be saved. He chose them for salvation. How would salvation happen? Well, he tells us salvation would happen through the sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. We've talked about the word sanctification a couple of times. It's not a word you throw around in your everyday language. So just as a reminder, sanctification is talking about being set apart from the world to be God's. In the Old Testament, you think of the tabernacle where maybe a common bowl was sanctified. It was set apart from its common use for use in the worship of God. God's people here, it says, salvation, how does it happen? It's when God sets apart, he calls out people from the world and sets them apart to be his. So we are saved by the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Well, how does God bring this about in our lives? How does God set us apart? How does God bring us to a belief in the truth? Well, again, Paul tells us in verse 14, he says, To this he called you through our gospel. Through our gospel. And so we hear that in the present time, God has called you to salvation, changing our hearts so that we might entrust your life to Jesus. And he does it through the message of the gospel. What's the goal? What's the goal of this salvation? Paul tells us that too in verse 14. So that you may obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. God has done all of this work of salvation so that we might share in Christ's glory for all, of salva- for all of eternity. So here in these verses, let's just review this real quick, we have a summary of salvation. God, from eternity past, chose his people from the beginning that you might be sanctified or set apart from the world to be God's by the Holy Spirit, to believe the truth. In the present time, God is now calling us to this salvation by the words of the gospel so that in the future we will share in Christ's glory for all eternity. That's a minary summary of what God has done for his people. If you look down then to chapter 3, verse 3 for a second, remember Paul uses the same argument two two times. So we again get a statement of what God does and who he is down in chapter 3, verse 3. And here, Paul is asking the question, well, if God's plan is that his people would share in Christ's glory forever, how is God going to hold his people? How does God hold on to those who are his? And here Paul says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God establishes us. This is a word which means to strengthen and and it brings up the picture of strengthening a wall against attack. How do you strengthen a wall? Well, you, you build it up. You strengthen its foundation. You support its weak points by adding support to those areas. This is what this word brings to mind. God will establish you by, by founding your faith, grounding your faith, strengthening you in weak points, building us up in the grace of the truth. God establishes us and he guards us setting a hedge of protection around our souls, giving us his own spirit to strengthen us and keep us. And that is what God has done for us. And it's what God offers to any who will come to him in faith. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, okay, we've got this summary of God's salvation from beginning to eternity and how God strengthens us and keeps us. Great, but why would God do this? Why would God do this for me? After all, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. Why would he do this? And Paul tells us the answer to that too. God offers this salvation to his people because of two beautiful attributes of God that form the bedrock of our confidence. 
God's love and God's faithfulness. In verse 13, chapter 213, Paul says, but we always ought to thank God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. God's love, see, has always been the foundation for God's salvation. Why does God offer salvation by faith in Jesus? Because of his love for us. Maybe you turn your minds back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says to Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. It's the Lord's love that grounds his salvation. And then there's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness, his guarantee over and over again that he will do what he has said he will do. Maybe you think of Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 12 where God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. God gives us this vision of himself, the almighty and the holy one, keeping watch over his own words, keeping track of them, following them in order to perform every one of them. Brothers and sisters, if confidence and security enable our steadfastness, as we said at the beginning today, if our confidence in God's salvation is what enables us to be steadfast, then God's people have an overabounding motivation to be steadfast in our faith because we have an overabounding security in God's love and God's salvation and God's work of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. That he would choose us, sanctify us, call us, and glorify us in Jesus. If we have that confidence and security, what great reason we have to be steadfast. Well, this leads us right along with Paul's thinking to our second point. We've seen what God has done for his people. How should God's people respond to what God has done? Well, you see it in verse 15. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions you were taught by us by word or letter. And then if you look down to chapter 3, verse 4, you have a similar thought in, in the second cycle of Paul's argument. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Stand fast, persevere in obedience, hold on to truth. That's how God's people should respond to what God has done for us. And we know what it is to stand firm, right? When you think of standing firm, you're talking about standing your ground in the face of attack. That's what it is to stand firm. When I hear the words stand firm, it reminds me of the words of General Barnard B. It's a great name, by the way, Barnard B. Tongue twister of a name. Barnard B, a general in the first battle of Bull Run shortly after the start of the Civil War. The Union troops had beaten back the Confederate uh, army and broken a hole in their line until Thomas Jackson, a brigade leader, stood in that gap and stood firm. And General Barnard B. rallied his troops by saying, look at Jackson standing like a stone wall, which of course led to his nickname Stonewall Jackson. He stands firm and doesn't give ground even in the face of overwhelming attack. That's the picture here. As Paul says, so then, brothers, stand firm. This is a spiritual summons to our souls. It's a, it's a description of the action we take, the practical life zeal we pursue, given our security and confidence in what God has done for us. Well, how do we stand firm? 
What does it mean? That's a great general call, but what does it look like to stand firm? Notice again, Paul tells us, we stand firm by holding to the traditions you were taught. Now notice that Paul does not say by holding to tradition, as if we're supposed to just hold fast to some general traditions that our religious institution has established. No, he says, hold to the traditions you were taught by us by word or by letter. In other words, it is the teachings of Christ and his apostles that they spoke and recorded in the pages of Scripture that we hold on to as our source of truth. That's what we hold on to. And that is why, by the way, every week here at Westminster, we recite together the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Catechism. Not because it's tradition, not because it's just what we do, but because in those words— It gives us a chance to affirm each week that we hold to the words of Christ and his apostles. Because our call, as as John Stott put it, our call is to be uncompromisingly loyal to the truths of Scripture once for all delivered to the saints. And we affirm that week by week. Let me pause for two applications about standing firm. First, Note that we as God's people are not called to go out and win the spiritual war or to be spiritual superheroes. No, our calling is to stand firm on the ground that Christ has already won for us. The question for us is whether in the daily rhythms and pressures of life, we will persevere standing firm on the truth that Christ has established and won for us by his death and resurrection. One commentator notes that Satan in general has three ways that he attacks God's people. Satan attacks us by tempting us to sin or live like the world. Satan attacks us by trying to deceive us with false teaching. And Satan attacks us by inflicting suffering on us. But the great news of scripture is that God has specifically promised to be faithful to his people in each of those three attacks. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How about false teaching? Hebrews, where the Christians were facing false doctrine. God urges in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering For he who promised is faithful. And certainly, Satan will seek to beat down God's church with suffering. But again, God's faithfulness is our rock. 1 Peter chapter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you hear, brothers and sisters, how God specifically proclaims his faithfulness in every category of Satan's attack? Whether you are struggling with sin, whether you are facing significant suffering or the daily burdens of the weekly routine, or being pulled by beliefs that don't square with Scripture, in every case, look to him and to his victory and stand firm like a stone wall with the power and the promises of God. This is the summons to us. But if I can beg maybe your attention and focus a little bit more for a second application, 
And maybe I can speak particularly to our younger members as I speak to our cultural moment today. Because this world is under the curse of sin, and because every person is born a sinner, it quickly becomes obvious to every new generation that things are wrong with this world and with its institutions. But the danger is that the culture may correctly spot problems in the world and maybe even problems in the church. But instead of holding things up to scripture for reform where needed, the culture proceeds to offer its own alternatives and solutions that at times can begin to sound more attractive than the gospel. After all, the culture spotted the problems. Maybe they have the answers as well. And this is happening all around us today, which is why we have a new generation of, excuse me, a new genre of story. It's the spiritual deconstruction where millennials and Gen Zers share stories of abandoning their faith in Christ. YouTube comedians Rhett and Link shared their stories earlier this year. Joshua Harris was a widely reported example. And parallel to these stories of spiritual deconstruction is a growing movement of progressive Christianity, which seeks a new version of Christian community, freed to accept and care for people, pursue social justice, and avoid the guilt and boundaries of traditional Christian doctrine. Behind this flight from the church, however, are a few common trends, and I want to highlight them because we need to be on the watch for these in our hearts. Behind this flight from the church, we often see an unresolved tension between the culture's use of the word love, meaning tolerance and acceptance, And the Bible's use of the word love, meaning a sincere commitment to a person for their good. There is often an unresolved feeling that science and the Bible are at odds. There is also often a recognition of real hypocrisy that takes place in the church. There is also an unresolved guilt for not living up to Scripture's standards. And the last common trend is the sudden perception that the church seems to have provided no good ground for caring for the immigrant, the poor, and the oppressed. These trends are repeated over and over and over, and they lead to a loss of faith, a rejection of Christianity, or a movement into progressive faith. But can I offer this comment? The stories of deconstruction almost always say that they offer an authentic wrestling with these things, and they almost always end with the author feeling freer and happier and renewed in its purpose in life after shaking traditional Christianity. But spiritual deconstruction always starts in the same way, at least in my experience. It starts this way. Years before this happens, someone still holds to major Christian doctrines, but they have adopted cultural terms and cultural values. So that years later, as they've held those values, Christian beliefs no longer appear credible because the values they accepted years before without paying attention. And then that person, instead of going to the church and to scripture to ask real questions that need to be wrestled with, typically don't ask scripture or wise older believers because they seem to be part of the problem. And so instead, they go to the internet or other peers who have the same questions and are facing the same problems, but don't have the answers. And brothers and sisters, there are real issues to wrestle through. 
This is not me saying that the church is perfect by any means. There are real issues here. And the church needs to be ready to hold itself up to Scripture. But if these are questions you're asking, I'd encourage you to talk to a pastor or a wise older believer to help you think through them. And if you are tempted to think about progressive Christianity or leaving the faith, I would ask you to consider one question. And the question is this. What if the Bible, the very thing that we're ready to throw out in our attempt to start afresh, actually has the answers we've been looking for all along? Because it's God's word, after all, that explains why all of creation, all governments, all institutions, all cultures, and even churches are groaning under the weight and the curse of sin. And it's the Bible that offers the only credible hope to justice and reconciliation, the only full solution to guilt, and the only answers for those seeking purpose and impact that can actually deliver on what we're seeking for. Ian Harbour is another author who deconstructed his faith and left Christianity, though years later he returned to it. And he said this, and I want you to listen to this carefully. He said, spiritual deconstruction and progressive Christianity do not offer freedom. They just commit you to the opposite worldview system, based now on a liberal progressive view of the world instead of an ancient one based on scripture. Instead of traditional values, wokeness is now the test of character. It's not sin in the need of salvation, but it's guilt over my class, my gender, my race, my religion that imposes on others that must be resolved by my pursuit of social justice. It's not freedom, but a new system that suddenly has little in common with Scripture, but issues just as many demands on us and issues just as harsh of judgments if you don't toe the line. Of course, moving to progressive Christianity or deconstructing your faith— If you do adopt this, you now have the loud voices of the culture on your side. People now affirm your courage instead of shutting you out for triggering them. And in the short term, this can feel far easier and more freeing, and the newness of the decision can feel energizing. But I pray that the voice of Scripture would be raising red flag after red flag after red flag in your hearts as we see what does not hold up to God's Word. Ian Harbour concluded this way after his path of spiritual deconstruction and returning to the faith. He said, yes, we in the church need more nuance, more compassion, more grace, more understanding. Every Christian and every church should be ready to hold their lives up to Scripture for reform where needed. But these things are only made possible by Scripture's truth, not in spite of it. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to beware of adopting cultural values that in the long run will make the truth of the gospel appear uncredible. And so, in the end, I would echo Paul's appeal to you. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, stand firm and hold to the traditions that is the words of Christ and his apostles as recorded in Scripture. That is our only hope. Well, we move on. We've seen what God has done for his people. We've seen how God's people should respond to God's salvation. Paul concludes by praying for the very things he has urged. And you see this in chapter 2, 16 and following. Paul prays that the God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace 
would comfort our hearts and establish our hearts in every good work and word. Now, when Paul talks about comfort here, the word comfort is not only talking about uh, sympathy and grief. The word comfort refers to consoling, encouraging, and refreshing someone by coming alongside them with words of exhortation and hope. And Paul prays that since God has given us eternal refreshment, eternal consolation in Christ, that now God would comfort our hearts and establish them in the face of whatever winds are blowing against us. Then Paul prays that this comfort would strengthen them for every good work and word. And I love this phrase. Maybe, maybe just pause for a second and camp out on that phrase. That we would be established in every good work and word. I wonder if maybe we would consider using this as a prayer for each of our days. If we wake up in the morning and pray this, that God would establish us in every good work and word. Think of how this might lead to works of faithfulness and obedience and love that bring glory to God. That it might lead to words of peace and forgiveness and humility. Words of strength and comfort to others. Words of courage and faithfulness and truth. All because we have prayed regularly that the God who saved us would establish our hearts in every good work and word. Paul repeats the prayer for almost the same end in chapter 3 verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. There's our whole point of our text this morning, that the Lord, because of his work on our behalf, would direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. But note that as Paul prays, he doesn't only pray for the Thessalonians, he also encourages the Thessalonians to pray for him. He encourages us in chapter 3, verse 1, to pray for, for the success of the gospel, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored and that they may be protected from wicked and evil men. See, God is our, we've already heard that God has chosen his people to be saved, to be set apart to believe the truth. And Paul has said that the way God saves people is through the words of the gospel. And so it makes perfect sense now that Paul would ask for prayer, that the gospel, the word of the Lord, would speed ahead. That, that, that word means to, to race ahead to victory. So you imagine the, the horse or the car that's out in front racing ahead to victory. That's Paul's prayer for the gospel, that it would race ahead to be honored in every city as it was in Thessalonica. Again, what a beautiful prayer that maybe we could use as a pattern to pray for our missionaries and for our church that God would be with them to protect them from the evil one and that the word of the Lord would speed ahead through them. Well, we come toward the end. As we do, can I just draw your attention briefly to the focus of Paul's prayer? You know, we are certainly encouraged to pray for practical concerns in life. We're certainly encouraged to pray for our circumstances. But do you note that Paul's prayers most often focus not on the circumstances, but on spiritual flourishing in God's people? Pastor Rick Phillips put it this way. He said, so much of our daily focus is giving to seeking positive outward circumstances. Whereas Paul argues instead that God wants to be glorified by making us flourish spiritually even in the barren settings. We spend most of our time praying that the desert would go away. Paul spends most of his time praying that we would flower and flourish as God's people in the desert. Phillips goes on, isn't it remarkable that in the midst of the great affairs of history and the mighty clash of heaven and hell about which Paul has been writing, he concludes by saying that what really matters is the way that we live before God, 
doing all kinds of good works and saying all kinds of godly words? I would encourage us to think that our prayers reveal what is important to us. And so while we are encouraged to bring everything before the Lord in prayer, everything in life, what do our prayers focus on? What is the bulk of the focus of our prayers? Is it focused mostly on our circumstances? Or do our prayers reflect Paul's belief that in the midst of the grand happenings of the world and all the things going on around us, Paul says that he prays for the church to flourish spiritually in steadfastness, in good work, in good word, in acts of obedience to God. I pray that we would pray for ourselves to that end and for our church to that end. And so here we are at the end, brothers and sisters. We end where we began. The fertile soil for steadfastness in our faith is the confidence and security we have in what God has done for us. God has acted from all eternity past to work through the gospel to bring us to eternity futures to share in the glory of Christ. And he acts now to hold us fast and protect his people. All of this is offered to us in the gospel. If we will put our faith in Christ, all of this is offered through the work of Christ for us. And if that is what God has done for us, we have the strongest possible encouragement to stand in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ who will not disappoint any who stake their hope in him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are a great God and King and Savior. You have acted in Christ from eternity past to bring salvation to sinners out of your love and your faithfulness. And you have offered this salvation to any who would come to you and put their faith in Jesus. And to any who would, you've offered this promise that you would establish them and protect them, that they might share in the glory of Jesus forever. What a hope. What a gospel. Oh, Father, hold our hearts fast to you. Hold us to truth against the winds blowing around us. Hold us fast to scripture, even as we wrestle with legitimate questions and hold our own lives and the lives of our churches up to scripture. We pray that this would be done for the glory of your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation, through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.